Well, hi. Welcome back to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. So you know how they always say to save your work? <laughs> well, um, this thing happened. So um, I was just trying to add the theme music to this episode and I wanted it to fade out. So I clicked on it and I hit fade out. And then because it's really important to save your work, I saved it. And once I'd saved it, I realized that I hadn't just faded out the theme music. I'd faded out the entire episode. Ah, there were some expletives, let me tell you. Um, so being pretty confident that I could recover it or fix it. Uh, well, let's just say if there are any weirdnesses with the audio, you understand why. Because the thing is, I've already recorded this episode twice and I just don't feel like recording it again. And I decided that, damn it, it's my podcast and I don't want to. <laughs> I should have just left it and then y'all would be listening to it and it would be getting quieter and quieter and quieter. 45 minutes of starting at normal volume and then getting quieter and quieter and quieter and everybody's turning up the volume and turning up the volume and turning up the volume and going, what the hell? Uh. So sometimes it's best not to save your work. Let that be a lesson. <laughs> that aside... So last week, as I mentioned, it was approaching the Creative Inc. Fest uh, here in Burnaby, BC, and uh, I was kind of bummed out about missing that. And this week, oh, there's another one. MissCon is one of my favorite conventions to go to in Missoula, Montana, and it's, it always takes place on the U.S. Uh, Memorial Day long weekend. And so all my friends that I usually see when I'm there, oh, I miss you, love you. Uh, hope to see you soon. I know that someday things will get back to some semblance of normal. It, it it's all going to be different, but you know that's okay. We're we're humans, and we pull through these things. We adapt. Latest little bit of excitement is I was featured on Just Joshing, which is a podcast put out by my friend Josh Pantelaresco. So I posted the link to that on my Totally Fantastic Title Facebook page. Um, I'm reading an excerpt from chapter one in there, but it, it was really fun to be part of his podcast. And he's going to, he's giving readings of his own work on there. He has interviews with people. He has other people guests doing readings and he's reading his own work. And it's, it's a really fun podcast. So give a listen and, and um, I hope you enjoy it. Betcha he never accidentally faded out an entire episode. Anyway, thanks to Josh for having me as a guest. <laughs> and and thanks for being such a supporter and, and saying such very kind and encouraging things. I appreciate it very much. I also, on my Facebook page, posted the links to some helplines and crisis lines uh, for the benefit of those people who are struggling right now. Things are starting to open up a little bit, but it's going to be a long time before things get back to kind of the way they were. And meanwhile, I know a lot of people are having a tough time. So I posted that information for the benefit of anyone who needs it. And now enough chit chat. Let's just get on with chapter three. Gatekeeper's Key by Krista Wallace. Chapter three, Dominoes.
Pierre sat up and peeked out her window at the misery that fell in torrents. Her encounter in the middle of the night had wiped her out. She groaned and dragged herself out of bed, despite an overwhelming desire to crawl back and bury her head beneath the blankets. Upon hearing about Pierre's intruder, Valraker agreed that it was likely an accomplice of Simon's. If it was the weapons they were after, they'd have simply broken into the shed to retrieve them. Clearly, they wanted the chest. Rather than give his company the day to prepare, Valraker decided on an urgent departure. He divided the group into what he called suitable pairings, and directed Jaskelin and Janik to leave that very afternoon. Kier and Derry were to wait until sundown, and Valraker and Fennel would leave later still. Staggering their departure would, with any luck, confound anyone inclined to follow them, and Kier gave the chest to Valraker, who buried it in the bottom of his pack. Someone would have a tough time finding it in Kier's possession. Valraker said we'd have two more nights, Janet grumbled down at Jaskelin. I call that one, one night. We have experienced changes of plans before, the maid replied. I should be drinking in the morning star with a warm bed waiting for me, not lumbering along in the pouring rain. Janik stood up in his stirrups and sat again. Jaskelin didn't respond. He strode barefoot alongside Janik's horse with an easy grip on his staff. He'd tucked the waist of his Moabi robes into his belt so they did not drag through the puddles. A hood protected his bald head from the raindrops pelting against it. He seemed altogether too contented to suit Janik's mood. Leaving a day early, the dwarf muttered, and I notice we're the lucky ones who are shoved out in this downpour first. Isn't this what you humans do to dogs who crap on the floor? I hardly think Valraker compares us to ill-behaved pets, Jaskelin said. Then let him explain to my face why we have to be out in this longer than anyone else. You know very well why, the mage said. If you're cross, blame me, not him. We're all used to you being on foot all the time. Jaskelin looked up at him. Then this is not about us having to leave first. It was Janik's turn to say nothing. Apart from a coach headed toward Wanaka, the two companions met no one on the road. Janik's temper descended into glowering anger. His soaked hat stuck to his head. Water clung to his beard as it would in a sponge. When that was saturated, it ran down each fork of hair and joined the water that trickled down the side of the horse and into his boots. Between emptying his boots, wringing out his beard, and trying to keep the latter flung over his shoulder to prevent the trickling effect, Janik was the personification of cantankerousness by the time the pair stopped for a bite of supper. Jaskelin found an area under a thick grove of conifers where the ground was merely wet, not muddy. They sat on large roots jutting out of the ground. Janik pried his hat off his head, gave it a good shake, and rubbed his hair and beard with a rag. Jaskelin laughed at him. You'd be better off walking, he said. Look at me, my head may be damp, but I'm benefiting from my cloak much more than you are, my friend. He dug into his pack and pulled out bread and cheese. Janik glared at him. Shut up! He yanked off a boot and pulled his toe back through the hole in his wool sock, squeezing out moisture as best he could. Jaskelin broke off a bit of cheese. Perhaps it will be fine tomorrow and the rest of our journey will be more pleasant. He popped the cheese in his mouth. Janik dumped the water out of his boot and pointed it at the mage. If it's fine tomorrow, I'll have that girl's head for making us leave today. It was hardly her fault. The mage broke off another morsel of cheese with his fingertips. It was Valraker who resolved that we ought to leave early. It was because of her. If she hadn't killed that vole of a man, we wouldn't be running from his friends. 
as I see it, her quarrel with them has nothing to do with us, leastwise not me. It does now, since Valraker asked her to join us. That's another thing, Janik shook his finger at his companion. Why, in all levels of hell, was a girl so vital to the completion of this mission? Valraker does not handpick unworthy individuals to work for him. Even you were not chosen in haste, although sometimes it appears that way. He chose her for a reason. I'm dying to find out what it is, as long as she doesn't get us all killed in the meantime. They finished their meal in brooding silence. Janik decided his legs needed a stretch. He did not mount his horse, but continued the journey on foot and ignored Deskellen's smug expression. Valraker sure knows how to pick a good time of year to travel. Kier peered up at the gloomy trees from under her hood. She had to speak loudly to be heard over the drumming downpour. <laughs> Derry said. He seemed unaware that she was joking. Oh, yeah, the sense of humor thing. Maybe he thought she was insulting his lord or something. In truth, he pointed out, this weather is not so bad for traveling. It makes us more difficult to track. Really, I'd no idea, she said sarcastically. Indeed, he confirmed in all seriousness. Derry couldn't possibly have been more than a couple of years older than she, yet he had an irksome need to educate her. <laughs> Back at home, this would be perfect weather for mud sparring. The winner is the one with the least mud on him at the end. He has to buy beer. I see. It was a wonder his nose wasn't up in the air. Gee, are you going to be this much fun all the way to Nenya? The young knight didn't reply. How does Valraker put up with Mr. Jolly for a captain? Kier couldn't figure out why Valraker would think that she in this solemn, self-righteous caricature would be a good pairing. He rode staring ahead, back straight, in a very dignified manner, the same way he seemed to approach everything. Did he do anything for fun? Maybe he's worried bits of him will fall off if he laughs. They had headed off at sundown in the direction of a tavern on the outskirts of town, hoping to fool any observers into thinking it was their destination. They rode for an hour or so, changing direction several times. Eventually, they would backtrack to join the north road to Paterac. They had kept a close eye behind them and were confident they had not been followed. Kier took another stab at conversation. So, how come they don't call you Sir Derry? Why would they? <sighs> I don't know, being a knight and all. I am not a knight yet. Oh, I thought you were. You certainly behave like one. And so I should, he said. Kier half expected him to lecture her about her own behavior. So when will you be knighted? When I have proven myself worthy. She clamped down on her tongue before patiently asking, And how does one do that? I have been Dunvaren's captain of the guard for three years. I have devoted my life to serving my lord the duke, and some day he will recognize my loyalty. Kier raised her eyebrows at the mention of the Dark Elf's formal name, but didn't question it. Derry would not have used the name had his relationship with the duke been a simple one of employer and employee. The captain's fealty was without question. Kier didn't think him capable of feigning the conviction with which he spoke— why anyone would devote his life to serving someone else was beyond her. I've been working for Valraker less than a day, and I've already caused all this trouble. I hope he doesn't wind up wishing he hadn't asked me along. He knows you're new to this sort of thing and inexperienced, Derry said. 
He wanted you in the party for some reason, or else he wouldn't have asked you. Whatever trouble has been caused, you'll have a chance to make it right, and he'll be watching for it. Kier wished she'd kept her mouth shut. I bet you will be, too. They rode eastward along the edge of the woods where there were fewer trees and little shelter. Kier wasn't looking forward to being exposed to the full brunt of the storm when they turned onto the plain. Trigg's ears flicked. Kier looked back and saw movement in the thick darkness. Someone's coming. No sooner had the words escaped her lips than Derry's warhorse started. Derry wheeled around just as an arrow hissed out of the gloom and narrowly missed his shoulder. Four horsemen galloped out of the black toward them. Kier reached for her bow, fumbling with the strap and cursing her weakness. Fighting on horseback was not a skill she'd mastered. I'd be better off trying to outrun them. As she wrestled with that option, Derry hastily brought up his kite shield just in time for the bowman to aim at him again. The missile shattered, sending splinters flying into Kier's mount. Trigg reared in panic, and Kier, still reaching for her bow, was thrown, landing heavily in the mud. <gasps> her breath knocked out of her. She watched Trigg tear off into the woods. There seemed to be horsemen everywhere, and Kier scrambled to her feet, plotting how to use the trees as protective obstacles now that she was at such a tremendous disadvantage. Her sword was at the ready as the archer drew up. The other three horsemen went for Derry. Her attacker dropped his bow and drew a leaf-bladed shortsword. Kier prepared to duck, but to her surprise, he dismounted and headed for her. She flung off her drenched cloak and bent her knees in the ready position. He came at her, his sword drawn but held open to the side. She saw her opportunity but hesitated, watching his cloaked form suspiciously. Both hands gripped her weapon as she tried to distinguish his features in the dark. If you want the little chest, don't think I'm going to make it easy on you. The chief isn't after the chest anymore. He wants a word with you. His voice came eerily from nowhere, thin and insubstantial in the murky, rain-drenched woods. Kier didn't relax her position. And is he here? No, you'll have to come with us. Not bloody likely. I'm very busy right now. She circled, her boots splashing in pools of water that connected in muddy rivulets. Then I'll have to take you. Kier was not inclined to listen to threats. He finally swung his weapon, but she blocked it, pushing his sword out of line. She released and darted a couple of thrusts, testing his reaction time and planting the notion that she was unsure of herself. She fainted a clumsy stab toward his chest, anticipating his parry, and rotated her blade against his to slash horizontally at his neck. It sliced through his cloak and made contact with his hauberk as she swept back. He was taller, but she was quicker, and it did not take her long to analyze his skill. She advanced with another quick thrust, allowing him to dodge, and retreated. She repeated the movement, each time drawing him closer. He finally lunged toward her middle, but she had seen him lift his foot and was able to step aside. She fainted a cut to his shoulder, and as he blocked it, she slashed at his upper arm. With a cry, he poked back, but she slipped in the mud down to one knee, and his sword met empty space, which threw him off balance. Seizing the chance, she swept her hand and a half upward into his armpit. With a yelp of pain, he retreated, desperately switching his weapon to the other hand, even as his attention shifted. Kier risked a glance over her shoulder. One of his friends was approaching to back him up, mud smeared down one side where he'd landed after being unseated from his mount. Kier positioned herself with her back to a tree, keeping one eye on the still wobbly first fighter. She wiped the water from her brow and leveled her blade at the oncoming attacker. Drop your weapon, the man ordered. You will come with us sooner. Clang! He deflected her overhead slash, or later. 
It'll have to be later, she snarled back. His next attack was strangely tentative, and she parried it easily. It dawned on her they were under orders not to kill her. <laughs> that works in my favor, she thought. She had no scruples about killing anyone who attacked her in the woods. Grinning wickedly with this wisdom, she lunged at his collarbone. They all scrambled to keep their footing in the muck, and the light was poor, but they continued to swing. The wounded man wavered but still attacked, and the other timed his hits well. She struggled now, fatigued with maintaining her footing and preventing either of her opponents from getting behind her. Number two went for her right shoulder, and she partially blocked it but still felt the tip slice into her upper arm. Blood oozed down her elbow, but she held on tight with both hands and jabbed low at him, cutting deep into his thigh. She had to dodge another jab at her shoulder. I'm defending too much! Water flowed off her bent elbows, and the stream down her face half blinded her. Sweat trickled down the small of her back. Her body was tiring of the fight, and her calves ached from trying not to slip. Giving her head a shake, she hastily wiped hair out of her eyes. Number one staggered to maneuver in behind her, his sword raised, but he was in bad shape and couldn't wield it properly. Drawing energy from somewhere deep inside, she faked a stab at two to delay him, then, pivoting in the slick mud to face one, drove her sword into his stomach. Two's weapon whipped toward her, but her sword had penetrated deeply into the dead man. It took her an instant too long to pull it out. She didn't have time to block, and with the momentum from the release of her sword, she lost her balance. Pain shot through her ribcage as his weapon slashed into her left side. He drew back a half-step, sensing victory. It was an error that would cost him. Brendau's teachings were second nature to Kier, rooted like an old-growth cedar. The battle isn't over until the last enemy has fallen. Gasping and furious, she regained her footing, screamed in rage, and cut down ferociously onto his weapon arm. In the shock of losing his sword arm, he didn't even try to stop her. With one hand, she plowed her blade into his chest and pulled it out again. He fell to his knees, his remaining hand futilely attempting to stem the red flow. His look of surprise froze as he fell face down in the mud. Blood streamed down Kier's side, and she swayed, leaning heavily on her sword. She reeled with pain, and a roar had begun in her ears as though she stood behind a waterfall. Each breath sent sharp pains shooting into her. Trying to clear her head and think what to do next, she pushed her hair away from her forehead once again. With no warning, a hand grabbed her under her left arm and swung her up, belly down, onto a horse. The motion tortured the gash in her ribs, and she screamed. Her weapon fell from her hand and bounced on the sopping ground with a muted clang. They galloped out of the woods and headed into the open plain. Ronav will be pleased to meet you, her captor said. Derry's turn had saved him from catching the arrow in the back. He split away from Kier, pleased that three of the pursuers stayed with him. Surely Kier could handle the one on her own. His opponents attempted to outflank him, though the trees were a hindrance. Recognizing this, Derry cut around a large fur, using it to protect his left side. Then he let go the reins and allowed his warhorse to take over. Donegal slammed into the shoulder of the lighter horse, driving the beast to its knees. Its rider was sent cartwheeling into the mud, where he grabbed his fallen broadsword out of the muck and ran to join his partner. At the same time, Derry swept forcefully at the second rider, who took the blow on his buckler and was nearly unseated. The third horseman entered the scene from Derry's right as the riders turned around and charged again. 
Suddenly the second assailant tossed his riven shield away and galloped off in Kier's direction. Derry had no time to look over at his comrade. His challenger did not let up. They came together with a screech of metal and a scream of horses. Derry's mount won the contest again, and the falling rider had to leap clear from his dying black as it collapsed. Derry heard a cry but kneed his charger forward, intent on riding his last enemy down. The man dodged the huge animal, but in his haste wasn't able to get his sword in position. Down went Derry's blade to cleave the man's neck. He felt the Eckert-forged steel shear through tissue and bone, and the head sailed through the air. It splashed down in the mud with its eyes wide open, unblinking and glossy with the rain. Alarmed by the pounding of hooves, Derry wheeled Donegill around and saw a horse racing away into the night. He reined Donegill in and whispered calming words as he directed the animal toward where he last saw Kier. There was no one but two unmoving forms in the mud, neither of which was the girl. He muttered an oath of dismay and gave chase, bursting out of the woods to rescue his helpless companion. In the dim distance, Derry couldn't make out much, but he thought he saw Kier wriggling in the man's lap. He saw a sudden flinging motion with her arm, and the next thing he knew, Kier had fallen to the ground flat on her back. The horseman swore a steady stream as he reined in to come back and retrieve her. When he caught sight of Derry thundering toward him, he spurred his horse in the opposite direction. Derry gave a fleeting thought to pursuing the attacker, but couldn't hope to catch the lighter-mounted man, nor was there any need. What mattered was that the attempt to take Kier had failed. Derry reined in Donegill near Kier, where she lay gasping in the muck. In her right hand was a stiletto knife, a couple of inches missing off its tip. He dismounted, hurrying to her aid, but she climbed haltingly to her feet. He stopped short. Her left hand clutched her ribcage. Blood seeped out from between her fingers and at the bottom of her leather cuirass. Each breath came short and sharp. Her face was pinched, but she did not cry out. Dropping her broken knife in a puddle, she lifted a foot and placed it down in the soggy grass in front of the other. Step. Step. She seemed to be willing herself not to stagger. Derry walked with her, anxiously aware of the deep red stain spreading on her side. Come, why don't you ride— Kier raised her hand and kept walking. Surprised she had turned him down, Derry stayed close in case she collapsed. By the time they reached the scene of the battle, the rain had abated to a mere drizzle. Kier's horse had returned to sniff the area near her trampled cloak. Derry rummaged through his belongings for his kit bag. When he turned back to Kier, she had dug out her own small kit and was bracing herself with a hand on a tree trunk to lower herself to the ground. Derry hesitated as he approached. Her eyes were closed as she rested against the bowl, yielding to the exhaustion that would overcome her completely if she gave in. He knelt down next to her. Let me, he said quietly, and began to unbuckle the side of her leather corslet. Startled, she sat up suddenly, winced, and leaned back again. Do you actually know what you're doing, or do you make it up as you go? Her voice was barely above a whisper. The former, he replied. I may not be a knight yet, but I am a physiker adept. He removed her armor and lifted her tunic to uncover her wounds, awkwardly averting his eyes from her bare torso, but he couldn't see properly and still keep both breasts covered. He ahemmed lightly. I apologize. It seems I must— Taking her grunt as a scent, he adjusted her tunic over her shoulder and shifted her jeweled pendant aside. 
In spite of gentlemanly effort, he flushed at the smooth curve of her breast and scolded his embarrassment and lack of professional detachment. Forcing his gaze downward, he corrected the focus of his attentions and hoped Kier was too incapacitated to notice. Interesting, she murmured. Killer knight who can physic his enemies. Derry considered. I don't tend to physic my enemies, he corrected her tactfully. After a moment or two, she went on. Anyway, it's handy. He moved her left arm to access the gash between her ribs. Hmm he murmured, assessing the damage. It wasn't pretty. He prepared a cloth, and she flinched as he cleaned the wound, a ragged-looking slice, no broken rib to go along with it, luckily. This way, we can fight. I can get really hurt, and you're around to fix me up. Perfect. She smiled weakly. Derry guessed from her pallor and apparent dizziness that she had lost a fair amount of blood. In spite of all this, you managed to remain cheerful, he said. What's to be all grim about? We won, didn't we? He wondered how serious a situation had to be before her good spirit slipped. I am amazed that you were able to overpower two men on your own. Oh, you are, are you? She closed her eyes again. You and everyone else. Derry instantly realized his error and reproached himself. This girl had defeated two men and escaped from a third— Besides that, she had shown stoic endurance of tremendous pain. It suddenly struck Derry that he would not have made the comment if he had been speaking to Janik or even that garrulous elf. Kier must frequently suffer the indignity of having to prove herself time and again, in spite of her obvious skill. "'I apologize,' he said. "'I intended it to be a compliment, but I see how you would interpret it otherwise.' Admonishing himself for doubting his lord, the captain straightened— Dunveran himself asked you to join us. Naturally, he would have chosen wisely. It's all right, Kier said. Anyhow, I'm not so sure he wasn't mistaken. How so? Well, for starters, we were just attacked by four men, which isn't exactly healthy for our mission. Secondly, we allowed one of them to get away. Thirdly, Turns out they don't want the armband, they want me, and because they didn't get me, I doubt we've seen the last of them. <sighs> she took a deep breath and slurred a few more words. I have to stop talking now. Derry said nothing, but put a salve he'd made of healing herbs on her wound and bound it. The patient's sigh told him she could already feel its healing warmth. As he tended her arm, he noticed another cut just above it and gently touched it, frowning. It was only a day old. "'Do you know anyone called Ronav?' she whispered. Derry stopped. "'Where did you hear that?' She gestured. "'The one who got away.' He said, "'Ronav will be pleased to see me.' Derry frowned and murmured, "'Damn!' "'What is it?' "'Ronav Malachite. Haven't you heard of him?' Kier shook her head, winced, and shut her eyes. Derry started applying bandages. He began as a simple merchant, but he has a faulty sense of ambition. He has his own views on the way the duchies are structured, and the last I heard, he had designs on overthrowing both Dunveran and Key and Barthelin. <laughs> Derry scoffed at the ludicrousness of the idea, but his tone remained grave. 
He holds secret meetings and has developed quite a following, which, of course, only feeds his desire to achieve greatness. His power has grown so that we must no longer trivialize the threat he poses. He could do much to distract us in our fight against Dregor, not to mention the rumor that the two may be linked somehow. Our enemy has many agents. And the fact that he was expecting the shipment confirms that he's planning something. Probably. Simon must not have been a mere lackey to have been given such an important charge, the chest and the weapons. If that is the case, it would explain why Ronav might be unhappy that you killed Simon and took his property. If he's heard Simon is dead, you'd think he'd also know why I killed him. I hope so, Derry said emotionlessly. This girl had unwittingly made herself a target for an enemy who must not be underestimated. Did she realize how serious the situation was now? Maybe I should have just gone with them, Kier said. At least that would have kept them from interfering with the rest of you. That would not have been acceptable, Derry said unequivocally. He paused. Are you still worried that Valraker will be disappointed in you? Yes, I suppose so. Her lids closed. Derry sat back on his heels. Look at it this way. This all started because you killed a man who insulted you, right? She hadn't told him the details, but that was the crux of it. Well, yeah, I challenged him because he insulted me. I killed him because he cheated. Still, do you regret killing him? She screwed up her face in what he thought was pain until he realized she was pondering his question. No. She finally decided he was a cheat and would have stabbed me in the back first chance he got. Would you do it again under similar circumstances? Yes, he was a scoundrel. I concur, and obviously so does Valraker. You cannot have known what the consequences would be. You simply acted because you knew it was the right thing to do, and that is why he asked you to be a part of this. Valraker will only be disappointed if you do not do what you feel is right. Derry finished the job and helped her pull her tunic back down. Is that all right? Yes, she replied. Thanks. He nodded. Now, he said, pushing himself up, I will search the bodies for anything of value. Kier struggled to move, but Derry laid a hand on her arm. Trust me. He guided her back down. I will give you everything that is rightfully yours. Kier couldn't possibly doubt his word. The man may not have a sense of humor, but he was absolutely honorable. She shut her eyes, and a moment later she felt him cover her with her cloak. In spite of its dampness, it did help the chill. Soon after, she felt him lay something on the ground next to her. Her sword. She reached out and rested her hand on the reassuring and familiar cold steel. There is nothing more I can teach you, Brendau said. It is time you were on your way. He'd lowered his weapon and let the tip just barely touch the hard-packed, dusty ground. After all the times the Wemniar had said, Not yet, she was finally ready. Her throat suddenly went dry. I don't think you're right. I haven't mastered— Are you mocking me? You just trounced me four in a row. That doesn't mean I'm ready. I, it was a lucky brick for the eleventh time in a fortnight. Okay, she admitted that. But what do I know about everything you need to? He put his hand on her shoulder in a fatherly way, as he had done so many times before. You aren't perfect, but what you need now is experience. You won't find that here in my back garden. I have taught you everything I know, which is much. 
You need now to go out in the world and find the knowledge you seek, and you will find it, my dear, though it will not be easy or pleasant for you, and it will almost always come from the most unexpected places. When should I go? As soon as possible, I think. He gazed out toward the barley fields. Don't be too quick to share with others the reasons for your journey. Don't show... He pointed his index finger as if for emphasis, then closed his fist and pocketed it. Kier's hand rose instinctively to her medallion against her chest. "'Be wary,' he went on. "'But you will recognize the trustworthy ones when you meet them.' He paused again as if there were something he wanted to say, but was unsure of whether to say it. "'You will have some difficult choices. More weighty than whether to plant corn or beans.' of greater consequence than who you will marry and whether you will have children. His face darkened. I pray that you will choose wisely. Kier took in a deep breath and let it out slowly, as she sought from his kindly brown eyes every last fragment of knowledge, of wisdom, of comfort. So do I, Brandau. She wanted him to know that she would recall his words every time she faced one of those decisions. Now I have something for you. He beckoned her to follow him inside the cottage. While he disappeared into his chamber, she waited in the front room and itemized every inch of it for the sake of her memory. The two ancient armchairs by the fire, the burgundy one on the right had always been hers. The view of his perpetually blooming garden out of the cross-hatched front windows, the only glass windows in all of Hreth. The dining table and two chairs under the window. How many cups of tea and how many biscuits had she consumed in the eleven years she had been friends with this man? The walls that were barely visible because they were covered by crammed bookshelves. The braided rag rugs that they'd had to roll back out of the way to practice when the rain fell too hard. <laughs> she clenched her teeth to quell the emotion in her throat. It was a good room. Hearing his ahem from the doorway, she turned around. Laid across his palms was a sheathed bastard sword. Kier stared at him. Brendau gestured with his head. Come on, take a look at least. Kier took the carved leather sheath from him and examined its curved parallel lines and tiny trefoils. The hilt was leather-bound steel with a tiny green gem at the tip and spiral patterns on the ends of the crossguard. She drew the weapon silently, and the sheen of it caught her breath. The blade was unblemished, not a notch in sight. The edges could have split a blade of grass. She held it upright and took a few slow-motion swings, careful not to hit the ceiling. It is much more suited to your needs now, a sword worthy of one who has studied the Wepnian. He grinned, unable to hide his eagerness. You should easily get used to the length and greater weight, and I think you'll find that the balance is excellent. Do you like it? <laughs> like it? It's fantastic! She had practiced with other weapons, but the only sword she owned was the one she had bought when she was twelve. This was the most perfect gift she could imagine. This was my first sword, he added quietly. My mentor gave it to me. Kier just stared at it in awe, unable to think of anything to say that wouldn't bring on embarrassed tears she hugged him, her teacher, her mentor, her friend. The last time she saw Brendau, he looked at her gravely, kissed her on the forehead, and whispered in dark elvish, Nevelesh benedothrerian evagandil benithen fremur. Go always with courage and the will to do what is right. 
Janik and Jaskelin found a suitable location to camp and watch for the others. The cedar boughs provided adequate shelter from the storm, and they could still see the road clearly from where they now sat. Janik volunteered to take the first watch. Jaskelin arranged himself comfortably to begin his evening meditation. The dwarf moved away and found a willow tree under which to sit near the road, where he would have an almost invisible vantage point. The clouds had thinned, and through the gaps Janik glimpsed the stars that invariably suffused him with comfort and wonder. He spent the next hour gazing skyward, using the twinkling warriors, chariots, and creatures that filled the skies to make up stories. A lone rider whisked by in the direction of Paderak, but Janik paid no attention. Kiera woke from her doze when Derry returned. "'I have moved the bodies side by side and covered them with their cloaks,' Not exactly proper funeral rites, but the best I could do under the circumstances. He held out his hand. Just a few coins each. Their weapons were nothing to hand down to our children. Kier eased her way upright, pausing in a squatting position until the dizziness subsided. Her fingers scooped the square silvers out of his palm and placed them in her own pleasantly bulging pouch. She could hardly believe that only yesterday this very pouch had held barely enough coin to get her through the night. Thanks. The light-headedness lingered. We'd better get moving. He did not offer to help her rise, but she detected the way he discreetly observed to be sure she was all right. Kier clung to the saddle and clenched her teeth against the pain as she hauled herself up. She glanced at Derry, but he was looking down. If he'd noticed her extra effort, he hid it well. Not many would be as sensitive to another's pride. Derry roped the enemy's horses to their own, and they rode into the night— Travel was quicker in the open plain. Still, they were more than an hour behind schedule and felt they had better push hard for the road to Paderak. The rain had finally stopped and the moon fought to break through the clouds. A brisk wind grew now, so it seemed the moon would win. The burnished blade was awash with music and merriment and Fennel climbed regretfully onto Layout's back beneath the clearing sky. "'At least we didn't get stuck riding in the rain,' he said genially. "'He couldn't believe his good fortune getting to ride alone with Valraker. "'Or, it suddenly occurred to him, had the Dark Elf chosen to ride with him "'because he simply didn't fit anywhere else?' "'In an effort to throw off any pursuers, they rode west until they reached the river, "'then turned north to the road. "'If all has gone well, Derry and Kier will be settled in the camp by now,' Valraker said. "'Fennel leapt on the opportunity to chat.' "'So who is Kier? Where did she come from?' "'I hardly know anything about her. "'She came from a small village in northwestern Heath. "'Beyond that, you'll have to ask her.' "'Fennel frowned, opened his mouth to speak, and closed it again. "'His chest had tightened with a combination of curiosity and envy. "'You just met her yesterday?' "'The girl must have done something remarkable to get the Duke's attention. "'That didn't happen every day. Three years Fennel had worked to prove himself to Val before being asked to join him, "'and he'd struggled to defend the Duke's choice every day since. "'You mean all you know is that she killed this Simon fellow and now people are after her?' "'Valraker said, "'Yup.' "'Fennel said, "'Humph. "'What was the Duke keeping to himself about what had taken place between him and the young woman?' The wood elf stared into the darkness that swallowed the road. I wonder why a girl from such a remote place learned to speak elvish. Humph, Val said. Fennel thought it sounded like a humph of agreement. See, I can be shrewd. Shame she's gotten herself into such a pickle, he said. At least she doesn't have to deal with it on her own now. 
Can't say that I'm sorry about it, Fennel said, watching for the Duke's reaction. It'll be darn nice to have a good-looking woman in the group, even if she is a human. For the third time in their conversation, Valraker agreed with him. Fennel considered it progress. We can't be far from the road, she thought. They had ridden northwest for nearly two hours, and not only were the horses tiring, but Kier's breath pierced her side like thorns. She had endured the pain for the past couple of leagues and was near the end of her tolerance, but they were behind their time. To stop and rest was out of the question. Her breaths came harder. <sighs> Derry reined in and moved alongside her. I think the road is just beyond those trees. Let's slow down when we get there. At the road they slowed to a walk but didn't stop. The sky had cleared save for a few scattered clouds, but with the breeze and her wet clothes she shivered. Derry removed his cloak and draped it over her shoulders. She adjusted it and indicated his plate mail. Are you going to rust? He looked at her blankly and said nothing. She made up her mind to give up on his sense of humor. Derry checked the position of the moon. I am sure Dunverin has met with the others by now and will begin to be concerned for us. He seemed to be defending the decision to keep moving. I know, I'll be all right. To reassure him of it, she went on. You call him Dunverin? Yes, Derry said. It is his name. But most people call him Valraker. True, Dunverin is his formal name used only by those who are close to him. Derry spoke without a hint of arrogance or pride. It was a point of fact. I have known him for half my life, and he has seen me through many troublesome times. I owe much to him, yet he would never hold me indebted. He changed to a brighter tone. Dunverin is the only one left in Rydris who can speak dark elvish. Kier stiffened, then winced at the resulting twinge of pain. But he did share some knowledge with me. If Derry was trying not to sound smug, he'd failed. He told me that Valraker is a dark elvish name meaning both dangerous, as in fearful to his enemies, and impregnable, like a fortress. His people gave him the name, I suppose, because he is their protector. It suits him, I think. Kier couldn't very well tell him she already knew the meaning of her employer's name. She figured she probably also ought to avoid telling him that Dunverin meant the ancient and was intended to bestow wisdom upon him when he was given the name at birth. To feign ignorance, she answered with a simple, yes, but went on. He's a remarkable man. It's no wonder the people of Eckert love him. She spoke between sharp breaths. I only met him yesterday, but I understand how they feel. Kier clutched the reins and shut her weary eyes, forcing her breaths to come slower. She tried to ease her shoulders and unclench her knees. So, Derry said, where are you from? Well, 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 Mr. Droll makes small talk. Hrath, she said. I have never heard of that. It's a crummy farming village, not at all like Wanaka. Why did you come to Wanaka? The road led there, she said lightly, putting up her guard again, though she had started to feel a sensation very like trust for this young knight to be. The feeling was unfamiliar, a vague recollection of friendship. There wasn't much more for a person like me to accomplish in a farming village. You're very, Derry began, you appear very young to be so adept at your craft. I'm twenty-three. Why did it have to matter? Oh, he said, that fits better. I estimated about eighteen. I get that a lot, which doesn't make it easier to swallow, she thought. How old are you? 
there was the subtlest hesitation. I am twenty-six. You're very young to be captain of the guard. In silence he reached forward and stroked Donagill's neck. Raising his chin, he said, I get that a lot. I imagine you do, she thought. She wondered if the others in the party had trouble accepting the young man's authority. Derry must excel at his duties or Valraker would never have given him such responsibility. He'd devoted his life to the Duke. She'd have thought Derry would deserve to be knighted for that alone, but only Valraker knew his criteria. Clearly the Duke was looking for more. "'Where are you from?' "'Eckert City,' he said proudly. "'Well, near it, anyway. I grew up not far from there and helped to defend it when Dregor attacked. Dunvarin and I managed to get away when it was sacked,' he finished gravely. "'Did any of your family escape with you?' Pierre asked gently. No. In the tone of this single word, Kier heard Derry sit up straighter. I lost my family to a pestilence a year after I joined the Eckhart Guard. At least, I am certain about my parents, but I never learned for sure what became of my sisters. Most of the town was wiped out, and there was no way of keeping track of everyone. No one was able to tell me about them. Derry stopped as if the memory had caused him physical pain. How are you managing? It was the captain, not the physicker, speaking. I can go faster, if that's what you mean. They picked up the pace to a faster walk. Derry looked over at her. I will polish it with an oiled rag, he said. She shook her head. What? My armor, so it won't rust. When they sensed someone approaching for the second time that long evening, Kier could hardly bear it but within seconds they were off the road, anxiously soothing the horses to keep quiet. Kier, nearly faint with stabbing pains, fervently hoped they weren't about to be attacked again. Let it be friend, not foe. The rider was nearly upon them by the time she finally recognized the fair head. Derry stepped out and hailed Fennel. Kier heaved a sigh and slumped in the saddle. The elf led them north to the camp. After midnight they were hailed by Jeskellen more than three hours later than they had been expected. A barrage of questions followed, but Derry hushed them and insisted on getting Kier settled before giving his report. Kier didn't balk when Derry assisted her out of her saddle and onto her bedroll. Only once she was comfortable did he begin the story, applying a new dose of salve as he spoke. The cool burning soothed her, and she breathed more easily. Kier recounted her escape from the horsemen, including Simon's connection with Ronav Malachite. Valreker's grey eyes were grave. After a moment, he smiled at her and said, "'What's life without a good balance of friends and enemies?' She accepted his congratulations. He rummaged in his saddlebag and a moment later produced a bottle and small goblet. He poured the equivalent of a few mouthfuls of dark liquid and held the goblet out to her. "'You'll want that.' She smiled uncertainly. Did he simply know she liked a glass of wine, or... No, of course. The dark elf had sat next to her as she went through the dark elvish wine ritual. He plugged the bottle with the stopper and grinned. Evidently he was not offended that she had adopted the ritual of his people. Thank you, she said, and propped herself up on one elbow. Valraker asked questions of the others, providing her with a modicum of privacy for the few moments it took her to drink to her nameless worthy opponents. She handed the empty goblet back and lay down. Derry? Jeskellen spoke quietly. Yes? 
Kier did not hear the mage's response, but Derry's voice came a moment later. Kier, Jaskelin has offered to perform a heal. She took up her propped position again. What does that consist of? Jaskelin sat wordless, apparently preferring that the physicer explain. It's a spell which speeds the patient's healing by degrees, depending on the level of energy the mage commits to the spell. The idea was not unappealing to Kier, and she said so. There is a cost, however, Derry went on. The spell requires pain transference, the mage essentially taking on patient pain. Kier had trained as a sword fighter. She knew basically nothing about magic and what a battle mage might be capable of. That a person would be willing to sacrifice his own physical comfort to help someone impressed her. She looked at the mage, his dark skin shining in the firelight. The scent of cedar mingled with the wood smoke. How long would that last? Wouldn't that make it harder for you to travel? Hard to say exactly, Jaskelin said. It depends on the intensity of the patient pain and how I control the energy and transference. The mage shrugged as if it were nothing. Kier took a split second to determine she did not agree. She shook her head. No, thank you, Jaskelin, but this... She indicated her wounded side with her chin. This is on me. I'll be all right. Jaskelin gave a little nod and Kier lay back down, breathing deeply from the exertion. Fatigue descended on her now that the pain had eased, and she listened to the sound of the stream rushing along a few paces away, reminding her of the swishing sound of wind through the trees. She soon fell asleep. The greenery swishes like the wind as I step through it, surrounded by it with blue sky far above between the long leaves, a forest with no path. Mama said be brave. Hands move the stalks apart so I can step through, stumble, get up, and brush loose hair from my face. Reaching the edge of the forest, step through the last of the stalks and see a little house across the yard. I hear hammering in the distance. Walk forward, toward the house, toward the woman out front who is wiping her wet hands. She has been washing something mucky in a tub. I go closer. It's wool. Mama said be brave. The woman speaks. She is kind, and I am safe. Kiera woke with a start and sat up, her breaths quick and shallow. <sighs> Derry was at her side immediately. Is everything all right? He whispered, a hand on her shoulder. She nodded. I'm fine. It was just a dream. Derry insisted on checking her dressings before she lay back down. Then he left her. She turned her face to the warmth of the fire. The dream was never frightening, yet she always felt bewildered afterward. She didn't know whether she dreamt it because it had actually happened or because Della and Gareth Halliden, the kind couple who became her parents, had told the story so many times. The dream was a reminder that she knew how she got out of the cornfield, but had no recollection of how she got in. No real memories, just formless images. No idea what her first language was, though, oddly enough, she still knew it fluently. Brendau had told her that was near to impossible. She'd been only three when she'd arrived. What three-year-old can fluently speak any language, let alone remember it, for twenty years? Yet when Kier was able to point out the differences between her language and Dark Elvish, down to the slightest variation in inflection, Brendau looked at her quizzically and didn't question it further. Gareth, Della, and Brendau remained the only ones who knew about it. Kier didn't even trust her friends well enough. Tarkin, Adric, and Bianca, her fellow trainees, were the only peers who'd bothered to get to know her. She and Tarkin worked up a sweat, both on the field and in bed. 
She put up with taunts and scorn from villagers who lauded Tarkin and Adric for their ability to defend the village. Derision was flung at Kier, even while Bianca was fawned over for her plan to become the next magistrate. Kier alone was spurned in spite of her superior skill. Kier shifted and flinched as she strained the wound on her left side. Life couldn't have been easy for Gareth and Della, either, what with the sidelong glances and whispers that followed them wherever they went. Sheska Bolin said the Haladins had accepted Kier only because they had no real children. Kier's blood simmered at the memory of the pretty, cruel face laughing at her. But she knew it wasn't true. Kier still felt Della's and Gareth's sorrow piercing her in the back as she rode out of town. She struck Sheska's face out of her mind. After all, if she'd liked everyone in Hrath, she wouldn't be here now. Drowsiness crept up on her. Fennel's magnetic eyes and terrific odor. Derry, the noble captain who stood just on the other side of the fire, his back to it, nice to look at, proud, professional, and more. And Valraker, she already felt a bond with him, a hero, a man she'd dreamed of, in every way desirable but thoroughly out of range. Kier melted into sleep, picturing how the relationship might be different if they'd met three hundred years earlier. That's it for Chapter 3. Tune in next week when Kier gets to go do some shopping. Now, I've been sitting inside for way too long. Days. We're talking days I've been inside. So, I'm going to go outside. It is currently not raining. Uh, I've heard vitamin D is uh, very good for you. I'm going to go do that, and I'm going to eat this apple. Because those are good for me, too. I hope you all take care take care of each other. And I was quoting Dr. Bonnie Henry last week, the um, BC Provincial Health Officer. Be kind, be calm, be safe. Till next time, thank you very much, as always, to my family, Matt, David, Heather, and Maggie. As always, David and Sharon, thanks to the original six, and to all of you, go be fantastic.